Hey, this is Homer Hargrove. I'm the pastor of Grape Top Church, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for connecting with our family today, and I hope this message inspires you and that it makes a difference in your life. Enjoy the message. But so many people are hurt by church, and whether it's from an actual church where people got hurt by or an individual who seemed to have represented a church, people have endured really inappropriate and harsh treatment from the name of church. And this whole month, we're going to be unpacking biblical moments and representations of times where the ideas of religion usurped God and his heart and the times that it was misused to the detriment of people. And really my heart in going through this series is to help people find a sense of healing, even a sense of justice for any pain that they may have experienced through their church hurt experience. And I really want us to set an example of how we as the church should and shouldn't behave. Y'all feel what I'm saying? So with all that being said, let's go ahead and get started today. We're going to be we're going to look at the story of Lazarus, the story of Lazarus, and we're going to examine his experiences with Jesus and his experiences with the religious leaders at the time. And we're going to compare the way that people and the church interacted then to the way that it's interacted with today. And so I want to start off by reading John chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. And the, top, the title of today's message is, Let Them Live. Let Them Live. So starting off, it says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not meant for death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. So right off the bat, we see that Lazarus is sick and in need of a healing, right? And This is the brother of Mary and Martha. We see Mary and Martha a lot in Scripture, in the Gospels, and they have both been pretty involved with Jesus' ministry. There's points where we see them even like preparing, hosting this event while Jesus is there. We can can draw some lines and connect the dots that, that they were hosting Jesus and his ministry and people were coming to see him. And... In their message, it shows that Jesus loves and cares about Lazarus. It says, Lazarus, the, the, the man that you love, our brother whom you love, even though there's never any other mention of Lazarus beforehand. Now, there's two ideas that we can grab about who Lazarus is. We don't, we don't know if he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. A lot of times when we read through Scripture, we just assume that they all recognize Jesus for being the Messiah. But remember, even Peter did not recognize him. There's a moment in Scripture where Peter saw Jesus and then ended up going back to fishing. And when Jesus said, let me in your boat, he's like, whatever you say. He's all irritated that Jesus was following him around until he eventually believed that he was Lord. And so we don't know if Lazarus 
believes in Jesus as being the Messiah. All, he could very well be this relative of Mary and Martha that is polite around the topic of God, but not really into it himself. Because we see Mary and Martha bending over backwards, preparing for ministry, uh, for this, this ministry event for Jesus. But Lazarus, it's almost like he's not even in the room. So let's, let's look at the idea that he could just be that polite relative, like, oh, that's nice. I'm glad you found, you know, your calling or found your path with God. You know, I'm just not ready yet. Let's, let's look at that idea. He very well could have been just as dedicated as them. But I want us to be open to the idea that he, that he could be that distant relative that doesn't really fully believe that he could be that one foot in, one foot out person because of the fact that he's never mentioned with his sisters during the time of Jesus ministering. So now... Now that we, we understand, um, oh, I just got like chipped out my, <laughs> my page was slightly down and I was like, am I, did I take something? All right. Going back to uh, <laughs> the point. So now that we understand who, we, who better understand who Lazarus is, let's continue uh, uh, in John chapter 11, verse 11. Oh my gosh. That's like 11, 11. Okay. Then he said, And after this, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going so that I may awaken him from his sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will come out of it. So Jesus waits two days and then says, all right, let's go see Lazarus now. And the disciples are like, man, we were just there. And the people tried, the the Pharisees and religious leaders tried to stone you. And so they're saying, if he's asleep, he'll come out of it. Jesus, let's just hold back. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about actual sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus died, and I'm glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let's also go so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. So we see this, this instance of sarcasm in the Bible where Thomas is like, all right, well, I guess we're going to just die too. And they go back to this place. And I want us to, to, to make note that Jesus sent news back to, his sick, back to Mary and Martha, his sisters, that the sickness will not end in death. Okay? But Lazarus dies just two days later. Jesus didn't say that he that Lazarus wouldn't experience death, but that it wouldn't end there. And and those of y'all who know the story, Jesus, I don't want to, you know, uh, (laughs) spoil it, but Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. It's this big, very memorable story. And so this part where he says it won't end in death, but he does, in fact, experience death. This is just some extra credit word for you. This should really speak to someone who needs hope and encouragement because you may have experienced some type of disaster or a defeat, but God is saying that it doesn't have to end there. It doesn't have to end in defeat, that there's that Jesus has the power to resurrect even these defeated moments in our lives. And even though you're faced with what seems like defeat, there is an abundance of life for you. In fact, God can turn any sort of defeat into something glorious. So now back to the story. It says, uh, Jesus has, 
he heads to this family that's mourning in Bethany. And the other disciples don't see the point of going. They really don't see the point of going, well, Jesus, he's already gone now, so what's the point of us going there? And this is a really key point because they were more concerned over themselves. They were more concerned over themselves and not wanting to have confrontations with the religious leaders who are just trying to stone Jesus. And the simple idea of comforting Mary and Martha seemed unnecessary, and it seemed, uh, it seemed unnecessary and tedious to simply comfort Mary and Martha through their grieving. It didn't seem worth the trouble. And I want to point out that this is still a moment where the disciples are, are still learning and they're immature in their, their knowledge of Scripture and their knowledge of faith. And they've been following Jesus for quite some time, but they're still getting things. And this is, this is a, their current religious mindset and how they saw this, uh, this seemingly ordinary task of comforting someone, of comforting someone as tedious and unnecessary compared to seeing crowds and crowds of people coming to be ministered to and hear the teachings and see the miracles of Jesus. This one little family, this, these two little people seemed just unnecessary to go and comfort them. What's done is done, Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, it had already been four days. And so now we can really get into the message. <laughs> now, this was just the intro. Let's get into the, the meat and potatoes of this message. It's been four days that Lazarus has been inside this tomb, right? Now we have a whole backstory to Lazarus, to Mary and Martha, to, to the situation and this this atmosphere of almost like curiosity and suspense. And it goes on to say in John chapter 11, verses 32 through 36. So when Mary came to the place where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. That is actually the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. It leads us to our, next, our, our first point, which is Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps. This is probably the most intriguing, the most intriguing part of this passage is the fact that Jesus wept. This is really, really intriguing. The verse Jesus wept, it's the shortest verse in the entire Bible. And remember, God is very intentional and detailed. He knows how many hairs each of us have on top of our head. Terry. <laughs> so, uh, but he knows how many hairs each of us have on top of our head. Why does God know that? It's a completely unnecessary detail. Why does he know that? Because he cares to know about the seemingly unnecessary details of our lives. And this is, there's a lot of things that we can unpack from this very exceptionally intriguing verse, this moment, because of the fact that Jesus wept. But I want to focus on just two of them, okay? The first is the fact that Jesus wept is a standalone verse. Because it speaks to the simplicity of God's heart. 
It speaks to the simplicity of God's heart. But religion makes simple things complicated. Religion will always make simple things complicated. Religious efforts try to explain and understand some of the most minute details of Scripture only for the purpose of trying to prove one's opinion. Not to really dive deeper into God or God's heart, but it goes into all these details to really just prove an opinion. They use, religion tries to use Scripture as a tool to only justify what they already believe. Y'all feel what I'm saying? And people will jump through hoops in order to declare some really stupid stuff. Again, I was not raised in church. And I started reading the Bible first before I gave, when I gave my life to Christ. And then, after I was already reading the Bible, I started going to church. And I've really found that people have some really dumb ideas about the Bible, about doctrine, about Scripture. In fact, even in starting this church, I, I love apologetics. I love proving the, the authenticity of God. And I was so ready and prepared for like some deep questions, right? And I never expected that I had, in starting a church, to receive some of the dumbest questions and ideas about Scripture than I've, that I've ever thought of in my life. I was really prepared to answer some deep theological stuff. But instead, religious people often question some really silly things. For example, I don't know... Uh, Maybe this kind of sounds like familiar to you. Well, if we look at the Greek of this and the Hebrew of that, it becomes obvious that you shouldn't get a tattoo. It's like, that brings us closer to God, right? No, it just makes you feel superior. It, or maybe you've heard, if you add up all of these dates, if you add up all of these dates and divide them by the verses, we can find that masturbation is a sin. What I'm getting at is people try to push opinions that aren't necessarily biblical, but they try to force them to be biblical by twisting scripture. And they'll jump through hoops and trying to prove a point. And we lose sight of the simplicity of scripture as we build, as we try to build a religion rather than a relationship with God. Y'all feel what I'm saying? And this simple verse of Jesus wept, it shows that God, what, that God feels what his people are going through. Think about this for a moment. God himself doesn't experience pain. God himself does not experience pain. So there is no cause that could make God weep. Jesus is God. There's no cause that could make him weep. So the fact that he weeps, it shows it shows God himself understanding when people will experience pain. The fact that he weeps when he truly doesn't need to weep shows a glimpse of just how much God cares about us. That he only weeps not because he experiences it, but because he sees us experience it. Now, the other part of this scripture that I find very, very intriguing is the fact that Jesus weeps knowing that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Think about that for a moment. He knows the end result. Why would he weep? He knows what's going to happen. He knows the end of the story. Why would he weep if he knew 
that Lazarus is about to come back to life. It shows us that God does not expect you to skip your emotions. God does not expect you to skip your emotions, especially your grief. You are not to pretend that everything is okay when you're really not okay. You know how I know when someone's going through a really hard time? When I see them and I ask them, like, hey, how have you been? And they say, I've been okay. <laughs> Man, they're like probably like doing really, really, really bad. Because at least someone say, well, good. <laughs> or we say, okay. That's like, man, they're just like about to have a breakdown before seeing you. And see, we have this idea and we have to just pretend that things are okay when they're not okay. Religion tells us that you're not allowed to feel pain even though uh, uh, when you're actually experiencing pain. But what God is trying to show us is that we don't have to pretend that you are allowed to feel hopeless even though you know there is hope. God allows us to feel, pr- to feel pain even though we know we'll be healed. You are allowed to even doubt even though you believe by faith. See, we are allowed to be human. And religion has painted this picture that we have to strenuously pretend, that we have to strain and strive to pretend that we have it all together even when we don't. I once heard a pastor tell me, you got to faith it till you make it. <laughs> like, man, you're a psychopath. <laughs> That's crazy. You have to faith it till you make it. You have to be ingenuine, is what that's saying. I can have faith and believe, yes. I can call things not as though they are, yes. But this idea of pretending is, is not what God has called us to do. And so many people have been hurt by the church because of this unrealistic perfectionism. Unrealistic per- perfectionism, and it's not even biblical. We're allowed to be human while we strive in the spirit. You are allowed to experience your humanity and be spiritual at the same time. You're allowed to experience your humanity while being spiritual at the same time. It it reminds me of uh, my wife's grandfather's funeral. And during the ceremony, people were crying, of course. And this pastor, when he comes out, he's like, why are you crying? This is a celebration. They're, they're, going to, they're going where we want to be. They're in a better place. You should be, you should be celebrating, praising. I was like, man, this guy's freaking crazy. <laughs> Even Jesus wept at a funeral that he knew there was going to be a resurrection. How much more do we have the justice from God to experience our humanity, to experience our emotions? He created every part of our being, even our weaknesses, even our emotions, even the sad ones, even the happy ones. You are allowed to experience your humanity and be spiritual at the same time. So don't fall for the trap of rigorous religion that portrays unrealistic practices of spiritualism. Rigorous religious practices that portray spiritualism, but it only makes one feel more superior without actually producing spirituality. Y'all feel what I'm saying? Real spiritual practice is simple. I think that's why we've, we have so many preachers 
that talk about nonsense. These nonsense ideas of spirituality. And all these rigorous ideas of, well, if uh, you, you must do it this way. You, you should do it that way. And things that aren't even biblical, but they sound lofty as spiritual. Because at the end of the day, real spirituality is simple. And it can be hard to go deeper into something, uh, something so simple while, making it, while unpacking the complexity of it at the same time. Because real spirituality, real spiritual practice is praying, reading scripture, generosity, worship, mercy, fasting, gratefulness, things like these. Those are real, authentic, tangible, spiritual things that we're able to practice. Now, I want us to continue on our story about Lazarus. Let's pick up in John chapter 11, verse 38 through 44. It says, So Jesus, again deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone, Martha. Oh, sorry. Remove the stone. I got ahead of myself. Martha, the sister. <laughs> Martha, get over there and move that stone. <laughs> That's where, that's where it connects. And when Jesus was in the tomb, the stone is too big to roll away, Jesus. Here you are again. Just joking. This, Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. But I, know, I knew that you always hear me. Nevertheless, because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! Out came the man who had died, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Some things really take time. That's our next point. Some things take time. See, there's a lot, there's really a lot to pull away from this passage. And I want us to start off with the fact that there's a stench to death. There's a stench to death. You know, one time when I worked in, uh, at a shop in Del Rio, there was this cat that had died in front of the shop in the parking lot. And, you know, we had customers pull up, and so it was obvious that this cat needed to be thrown away. It was real sad, you know, got run over or something. And it stunk. It stunk. There was a stench to it. And I really, really didn't want to touch a dead cat, even though it had gloves and everything. And so I went over to this cat. This is a true story. I went over to it. It was obviously dead. And I got down, and I said, You listen to me right now. You get up on your paws, and you walk. Live! I ended up having to throw it away. But <laughs> the point is that there's a stench. <laughs> there's a stench. And the, I, this idea of a stench of death, I really believe that our lives without Christ has a certain aroma. In fact, the way the Bible describes our prayers is like an aroma, like incense. And there's just a clear difference of having Jesus in your life and not having him. My life before had a stench of death. And I'm not talking about just like, ooh, smelly. I'm talking about I, my life had this aroma around me. 
of unhappiness, of, uns- of insatisfaction, and of death in me. And there's a clear difference of what it's like to have Christ. And what religion has projected is that some people, certain people have been spiritually dead for too long that they will have an unpleasantness to be around once they're alive. That there's certain people who when they give their life to Christ, certain Christians don't want to be around those people because they feel like they have a a stench of sinfulness. And religion pinches its nose at someone that was dead and now alive and cannot fully accept their new life in Christ. Religious mindset, religion in general, gives this idea that you were never once dead. It makes you forget your own sins, your own stink. And when you see somebody else have a life change, it, get you, it produces this self-righteousness, this better-than mentality, and we separate from people like that. You know how many churches I've been to where I can clearly see the people that don't fit in? It's horrible. If you've ever been that person that doesn't fit in, it feels absolutely horrible. And the other thing to note in this passage is that this resurrected life was multifaceted because Lazarus had a second chance at life. The people in Lazarus's life were overjoyed of his new life in Christ. And all the people that saw this life change gave glory to God. And they were able to witness the power of God. And it shows how one person is able to make a difference in the world just by answering the call of Jesus. It doesn't matter how long they were in the tomb. The minute that they answered that call, they are alive. And the last, the, the last thing I want to point out to this is the fact that even though he was brought from death to life in this born-again moment, that he had these wrappings around him. The, the, the wrappings, that, the, the, the death cloths around them of the tomb were still around him. And this speaks to the simple fact that someone is alive, they're alive. Think about that for a moment. Was Lazarus only slightly alive? No, he was fully alive. When he was in the tomb, he was dead. He was super dead. And it didn't matter if it was one day dead or four days dead or a month dead, he was dead. It's not a measure of death. It's just dead or not. moment that he was alive, it's the same way. He was alive. And see, that's what it is like when someone gives their life to Christ. There's not a measure of salvation. Like, well, they're really saved. <laughs> well, I'm barely saved. <laughs> see, it's you're either alive or dead. And in this, in this moment... It speaks to the fact, it speaks to the fact that these, that he was alive, but he still had these bindings on him from his past. He was immobilized to where he needed people to help unwrap him, even though he was fully alive. He could not do what just everybody else could do because he just got there. He was alive, but he still needed some help. And Just because he needed some help, it didn't make him any less alive because of those wrappings. Y'all feel what I'm saying? And it shows me that it takes time to learn how to live for Christ. It takes time 
to learn how to live for Christ. And depending how long we've been in that tomb, it will take some time to learn how to walk in this new life. Y'all feel what I'm saying? I mean, think about it takes how long to develop a habit? <laughs> 40 days, right? And then it's like four, and then it takes three months to develop, change a lifestyle, something like that. It's like 40, 40 days to change a habit, 90 days to change a lifestyle. And within the church, we don't give people any time at all. And see, I'm not saying that people should not repent. Repent just means to change directions, right? Well, when we were away from God, the moment that we turn our life to Christ, we were changing directions. Now we're walking this way. We have moved from darkness and we're walking towards light. And I can be completely honest with you guys. When I gave my life to Christ, it took me a while to get rid of some things in my life. It took me a while to really be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's conviction. To where there are certain things that at the very beginning, I didn't think I really needed to change. But the more that I was around Jesus, I was like, you know, I don't feel like I need this anymore because Christ really fulfills this in my life. And within the church, we have we have made so such a simple thing complicated. To where even most churches, they have a like a connection process where anyone that gives their life to Christ, one, they have to come up to the front so that they can confess in front of everybody that they have given their life to Christ and profess it among many. And they make something so simple, just giving your life to Christ, a profound moment to make it that much more complicated. Like, no, it has to be done up here. You can't do it in your chair. You have to do it like this. And then you go in the back and you have someone meet with you. And it's a great idea connecting with someone and leading you through this process of your new life in Christ. But then they give you almost like a task list. All right, now this is where, this is where it really gets hard. This is what you're going to do next. Here's a list of checkboxes. You better have this done by the end of the month or else. And we, we make this time frame to where if they, if they don't show fruit, they don't bear fruit fast enough, then we discredit their salvation. We discredit their life and declare them dead. It's wrong. And it's unbiblical. And... I believe that the fruits in someone's life and their salvation looks different to the individual and different from each individual. The moment that I first started serving in a youth group, I still had a lot of baggage in my life. And I remember I almost fought somebody at the first car wash that I volunteered at. <laughs> I was ready to hit this guy in the mouth for, for trying to tell me what to do. And everyone stopped talking and just looked at me. And I knew at that moment, as I was in this guy's face, and he got like this, and everyone else got like that, that everyone doubted my salvation. <laughs> but I knew that if, it was, if I was really not saved, there wouldn't have been as much talking. <laughs> I was like, man, you guys have a problem with me because I still have a, you know, might accidentally let a cuss word slip here, here and there, but at least I'm not doing coke! <laughs> Shoot, give me a break. I'm a work in progress. See, everyone's walk looks different. And we cannot judge their fruitfulness because we think it should be, bear more fruit than others. Y'all dig what I'm trying to say? And we have declared so many people dead that are truly alive. We ourselves should offer ourselves to lean on 
as these people are trying to learn how to live a life for Christ, rather than condemning them from afar. To offer oneself lovingly when, they, when someone stumbles from their old wrappings rather than condemning them for having the wrappings in the first place. They are working on it. And I think that simple idea is like, I'm trying, that's a powerful statement. And religion does not believe that. I'm trying. Well, I don't believe that. I'm trying. And I don't know how many times I've witnessed somebody genuinely and authentically give their heart and their life to Christ only to become so discouraged and overwhelmed by the projections of religious people that they end up leaving the church with their faith damaged. All because they didn't seem approved by the religious people's opinions. Jesus was truly right when he said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 13, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut the kingdom of heaven in front of people. For you do not enter it yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. It's a powerful thing, Jesus said. Who is he saying it to? The religious people, the religious leaders. But to the sinners, the ones that the religious leaders were condemning, Jesus talks gently towards. He surrounds himself with these, these outcasts and these, these people that didn't fit into the temple to the point where the religious leaders condemned Jesus himself. We need to understand that some things take time. Learning how to live a completely different lifestyle with com completely different values, set on a purpose, set on this mission to find God, to, to know God, to show God, that it takes some time. Y'all feel what I'm saying? So now let's, let's transition and go into our last point within Lazarus' story. He now has a second chance at life. He's no longer dead. He's alive. And he's a bona fide grave topper. <laughs> he stands on top of the grave. I, I was so excited to say that part. <laughs> he's a bona fide grave topper. And I want us to look at what happens in his life in the next chapter. Because I feel like this is what so many believers experience in their life after they become a quote unquote grave topper. It says in John chapter 12, verse 9 through 11, The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not on account of Jesus only, but so that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. This leads me to our last point, which is self-righteous killings. Whoops. Self-righteous killings. I want us to understand that the leading priests wanted to put Lazarus to death. Let that settle in for a moment. The leading priests of God wanted to put the man that had a second chance at life to death. It's really, really... Grasp this. The religious leaders wanted to cast out the story and testimony of a person who had a genuine experience with Jesus 
all because they didn't like how it sounded. This shows me that religious people often inadvertently kill what Jesus has brought to life. Think about this for a moment. Of all the people that have left the church because of church hurt, there's this general sense that there's a, this, this group of people that have been hurt by church, which means that they wanted to know God, but people got in the way. And what this verse shows me is that in the same way that people in the church have been incredibly hurt by people in the church. Every time I read this story, it bothers me. Mostly because people get hurt mainly because they didn't fit into the mold of religion. It's not that they didn't have an authentic heart for God. It's not that they weren't trying to find Jesus in their life. But it was all because they didn't fit into the mold of religion. They didn't fit into the idea of what the church wanted to look like. Think about how many times someone has been told, cover up those tattoos. There's been times when I was a youth pastor, I had to go home and change because my tattoo was showing. And think about all the times that people were told, you need to wear a nicer shirt. You need to dress like this. You need to do that. I remember this moment where me and my wife had connected with this young girl at a, at a church. No one else would talk to her, even though we were, we were busy uh, working in the kids' area and the nursery. And we saw this girl come in multiple times. And, and we kept telling people that weren't doing anything, hey, can you go connect with them? They were supposed to be leaders in the church. And we said, hey, can you go connect with her? We've seen her here three times now, and no one has talked to her. Can you go connect with them? Oh, okay. Never would. Well, eventually, the lights went out one day, and we were not able to stay at our post, and so we connected with that girl. And we ended up inviting her over for dinner, connecting with her, and shared this big chasm between her and faith because of the previous, her previous experiences with church and God, and et cetera. And so we just, we just befriended her. And we just were totally accepting of the person, the individual, and, and, and the value that she had as a person. And she ended up talking to us more and more about her faith and about how she wants to try it out again. She's really hesitant, but she's trying. She wanted to know God. She wanted to, to know what we were talking about, this love of God. And she was just making her way back to church. It was just such a beautiful, beautiful story. And... Don't get me wrong, she, she had some issues still that she was working on. She was working on her life. But me and Lauren, we were like, shoot, we had some issues too, girl. Don't worry. It takes time. And when we moved here, shortly after this time, we, we ended up moving here to start a church. We found out that this girl was having a bad day. She had a bad day, but she still went to church anyway. But because she had an exceptionally bad day, she sat in the back and she was just kind of like doodling in her journal. She was, in, she was just drawing like random stuff. She wasn't paying attention. She just had this idea like, at least I'm here. And a leader went, walked by her, saw that she wasn't paying attention, knelt down to her and said, 
if you don't want to be here, then you should just leave. So she got up, said okay, and left and never went back to church. That is just one small example of a self-righteous killing. Of how religion makes us out to be God's hitman. <laughs> We're just out to just, bam! Oh, you think you're getting close to God? Bam! You think you're, you're growing in your faith? Bam! No, you're not. You're, you're filthy. You're a wretched sinner. You're not anywhere close to God. Look at your life. You might as well just leave. Self-righteous killing. And instead of celebrating the simple fact that a person has been brought from death to life, religion harshly criticizes and snuffs out that new life that has been found. And then they justify their cruelty. That's what it is. Cruelty. They justify it through lofty ideas of themselves setting high standards of holiness. Our greatest holiness is like filthy rags to God. And so the idea of us trying to portray this high standard of holiness and project it onto others and declaring them less than because they didn't make your man-made standard is the essence of religion in this self-righteous killing lifestyle. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 23 to 24, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. The reason this last verse says that you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel is because those are two things that were unclean to the Jewish people. You say, he's saying you, you strive to make this meticulous detail in your life to say that you're holy. And say, oh, I never swallow a gnat because I'm so clean, I'm so holy. I strain out my water so I don't even accidentally have uncleanness within me. And he says, while you're doing that, you're swallowing a camel in the way that you live, in the way that you treat others. That you think that you're doing such a great job in your meticulous nitpicking, but you are, you're actually inflicting damage on yourself because you become beyond unholy in your cruelty as you try to portray yourself as holy in your nitpicking. And God cares more about the heart than anything else. And there, there are so many people who deserve the justice of an apology from the church because of the ill treatment that has been shown. And I want to just be, I just want to make a moment to do this. If you're here and you have been hurt by church, if your life was treated less than and you were made to feel like you had less value than you deserved, I'm truly sorry that you went through that. I know that it was not right and the church shouldn't have made you feel that way. God sees you and he loves you. And I may not be a part of the specific church that hurt you, but on behalf of the church, the body of Christ, I want to say I'm sorry. I am genuinely sorry that you've experienced that. 
I pray that in this message, it helps you to heal and to trust again. I really believe, I really believe that you are valuable and that your life is worth so much and that your life has meaning. Your life is truly precious to God and he cares about you. With that being said, I want us to take a moment to pray. If you're here today, and maybe just all things aside, you're here and you want to put your life and your trust in Jesus. If that's you, just that simple call, Maybe you feel like you are Lazarus and that you've been in this tomb for a long time and you hear God calling you out. Calling you out of darkness, calling you out of death into life. And you want to answer that call today. With every head bowed and eye closed, I want you to raise your hand. Amen. I see your hand. The Bible says in the book of Romans that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God that died on the cross and rose from the dead, surely you shall be saved. What it's saying is, if you have a genuine heart and talk to Jesus yourself and acknowledge his offering to you, have that conversation with him, that that's all it takes to start this kind of relationship with him. Because the very essence of having that conversation is what repentance is. Repentance, again, it's not a dirty word. It's not a mean word. It just means to change direction. And the minute that you have that conversation with Jesus, that's the very first step in changing direction in your life. You don't need me to lead you through a pretty prayer. You can just have that talk with God yourself. Now, with every head still bowed and eye closed, if you're here today and you have been hurt by church, and maybe even simply being here today is your attempt at trying to find this life again, even though you're afraid of being hurt again. If that's you, with every head bowed and eye closed, I want you to raise your hand. Amen. One more thing. If you're here, and maybe you have realized that you've been on the unhealthy side of church, and you realize for the first time today that you've been following religion, rather than the heart of God. And you just want to surrender that to Jesus. It's not a con condemnation to you. It's a self-realization. If you see that and you feel that way today, with every head still bowed and eye closed, I want you to raise your hand. Amen. I'm going to pray for you both groups. Jesus, you see the hands in this room and you see their hearts. And God, right now I pray for these two types of people. Truly, God, we want to know you. And we want to know your heart. We want to show your heart. And I just pray a healing over every heart represented here. That you help us to forget the past and move forward ahead. And I pray that you give a genuine conviction to each of us and how to treat somebody in whom you died for. That we treat them with humility, with love, with respect. And that you help us to walk this point forward in forgiveness 
forgiveness for ourselves and as we forgive others. And I just pray a healing and amending and a uniting of the body of Christ. Unite this church and the church so that we can glorify you in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you enjoyed the message today. If you did, there's a couple things that you could do to connect. First is to subscribe to our show so that the most recent episode will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And second is if this ministry has impacted you and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, you can click the link in the description or visit our website, gravetop.com, and you can give now. I'll see you next time on the Gravetop Church Podcast.